morning. I invite you to turn with me to Second Peter, Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. Phil has already given uh, given us a great introduction to um, where we are at, so we're going to have the ability to dive right in. Um, you know, the last song that we sang was a a great hymn for the church. Uh, what a blessing it is uh, to to sing of that truth that Christ will hold me fast. How can I be assured of my salvation today? How can I know that Christ will do that work? Uh, this is why we can uh, celebrate His work and we can sing of the truths of the gospel. It's why we should uh, rejoice in the Protestant Reformation because Reformed theology recovered the teachings of Scripture, that you and I, Christians, people who believe, can know that we are truly saved and we will persevere until the end. As Phil said, our, our salvation is as secure as God is faithful. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? Because even when we know that God has saved us, how do we know that He is saving us? That seems like a weird question, right? I'm trying to make sense of it in mind. I like it. When I wrote it down, I was like, "What? that really doesn't make sense, but it does. Even when I know in my mind that God has saved me, that He has saved me, how do I know that He is saving me? And that is kind of what we're going to navigate through today. How can I know and be assured that God is accomplishing His work in my life? Today we're going to look at this passage in 2 Peter 1. At this passage of Scripture that's going to show us the connection between grace, godliness, and our personal assurance. Grace godliness, and the perseverance of our faith. And I really believe this morning that if we saturate our minds and our hearts with the glory and excellence of God in this passage, we will see our personal life. We will see the life of this church. We'll see ourselves grow in worship. We'll see ourselves grow in love for one another. We'll see ourselves grow for compassion in this world and the assurance of Christ's work of salvation in our lives. Because what this passage of Scripture is going to teach us is that not only does the grace of God provide for our salvation, it also provides sufficiency to exhibit godliness in the life of the believer. And we're going to talk about, really, we're going to look to answer two questions. What is this passage teaching us? What does this passage teach us about Grace. What does this passage teach us about godliness? What does this passage teach us about assurance? And then we're going to ask the question, why does it matter? And so I think if we can answer those two questions out of this text today, we have, we have been faithful to this time together. A true saving experience by faith in Christ, through God's grace, we're going to learn this morning, it propels the believer into a pursuit of a godly life. Now this truth we're going to see does not mean that believers will cease to sin, but it means that they will strive 
to overcome sin through the power of God. We're going to learn that godliness is solely the effect, effective work of God's grace in our life. But it's also the active fruit of a life that has truly been transformed by Christ. In other words, grace is the fuel that leads to godliness and it's the foundation of eternal life. And it is that grace that will give us great assurance for today. Let's read this passage together. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're actually going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's dive in. What does this passage teach us about our life? What does this passage teach us about God's grace and godliness? I think the first thing that we see when we go to verse 3, we see that God provides completely for godliness. God provides completely for godliness. What we see here is us believers, people who profess Christ, who have been saved by the grace of God, we are transformed by the glory of Christ. And I believe Peter is aiming at two things here. One is, I believe he, he is addressing both eternal life and he's addressing godliness in the life of the believer. He's addressing spiritual transformation now and hope for the kingdom uh, to come. So in verse 
three, we see that the way of godliness and the hope of eternal life does not lie within our own power to produce or attain. Peter says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life or lead to life and godliness. And here's the truth. Jesus not only saves us from the consequences of our sin, He also gives us, graces us with everything that we need to be just like Him. The Christian faith, one of the truths that we see here is the Christian faith is not merely a set of doctrines to be accepted. It is a power to be experienced. His divine power has been graced to you in order for you to be godly. But how is this experienced? How does it become active in our life? And that's the next part of verse 3. It becomes active in our life through what? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. If you go back and look at verse 2, we see that grace is being multiplied in the knowledge of God. So, in verse 3, divine power is granted through the knowledge of God. And what I believe, the reason why I want to bring the attention, because I believe this gives us a good definition of grace. Because God's grace is a free power that works in us for our good. And when we're talking about knowledge here, we're talking about uh, referring primarily to an intimate relationship with another. In this case, an intimate relationship with God. Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, He says, This is eternal life, that you may know God and His Son whom He has sent. This is eternal life. So eternal life is about a relationship. And this grace that we're talking about, this, this grace and this, this godliness that is before us, it is rooted in a relationship with God. And the way this power becomes active in our day-to-day life is through our knowledge of God. It is through our relationship with God. His divine power has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the relationship that we have with Him. You want to know how I can live a godly life? You turn to the relationship that you have in Jesus. It's because of the work of grace in life. When you see the glory, when you see the excellence of God, and you know He has set His affection on you, you have power to live a holy life. When you see this relationship, when you know that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been made alive to God through Christ. And you see that before, even while you were yet in sin, Christ loved you and demonstrated that love for you, that He died for you. When you see that He has set His affection on you, it gives you power to live the life that Christ would have you to live. And it's by His Grace. So we have been transformed by the glory of Christ. But also we see in verse 4 that we have received the great promises of Christ. And really this verse 4, when it says, "...by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises..." 
This same thought, it's really a restatement in some ways of verse 3. The same point is being made. But the knowledge and godliness of verse 3 are actually interpreted for us in verse 4. The knowledge that leads to life and godliness is said here to be the knowledge of God's precious and very great promises. These promises are great because they come from a great God and they lead to a great life. These promises are precious because their value is beyond calculation. So just as our knowledge of our call to glory empowers us for life and godliness, so in verse 4, the promises of God do something for us too. What do they do for us? It says, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the promises of God, the knowledge of our call to the glory of God and to the life of Christ and the godliness of of Christ, These promises of God liberate us from corruption and they grant us a share in divine nature. And so here in verse 3 and 4, God teaches us here something we desperately need to know. That liberation from sin and likeness to God come by knowing and trusting His Word. Liberation from sin... And likeness to God come by knowing and trusting His Word. And I want us to make sure that we see, we see the power of God's grace and we see the promise of God's grace working in our life. And in working in our life, it is liberating us from sin and it is conforming us to Christ. Very practically, I think this means something. I think this means that we must go to the Word And we must search for the great promises of God and use them to overcome temptation in our life and let them lead us to acts of righteousness and love. This is kind of... um, I'm trying to approach this as a high level because I really want us to to focus in really from verse 5 to 11. But this is foundational for us this morning. If you look at the last part of verse 4 you see that this corruption comes from a desire. And this means that the battle against corruption is fought on the field of our desires. Alright, and and this this is good. Because sin makes its attack by holding out promises to you and me. Holding out promises as, oh, this will make you happy. This will fulfill your purpose. This will make you holy. This will make you righteous. This will make your pain go away. This will make your suffering dissipate. This will make all things better. That's what sin does. And and, and this, in contrast to the Gospel, because in contrast, power for godliness... Power for righteousness, power to live out your purpose does not come from our desires. It comes from knowing God and His Word. This is God's grace 
to us. We're going to revisit this, this thought of desire and how the gospel flips the script later on. But I, I want us to see that first, what this passage teaches us is that God provides completely for godliness. I mean, verse 3 summarizes it. And the foundation of that is the very promises of God. It is the very Word of God. What else does it teach us? If we look at verse 5-7, through seven, it teaches us that we, when I say we, we're talking about believers, those who profess Christ, those who say that I have been saved, that I put my faith and trust in uh, uh, Christ alone for salvation, we strive actively toward godliness. So, so God, God provides completely for godliness. That's the foundation, right? That's, that is what, that is what um, Andrew preached last week. Because God foreknew us and He predestined us and he, because He's called us and justified us, for, uh, uh, we can be sure that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And because God alone is the source of our salvation, we can rest in assurance that we will one day reach glory. So we see that God is going to provide for us. And Peter builds on that and he says, listen, God is also providing everything that we need in order to glorify God with our life. But then he, in verse 5, we see something interesting happen here. He says, what? He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. For this very reason. What reason? The reason... Being that God provides everything that we need for life and godliness. For this reason, we strive. For this reason, we strive. Because of Christ's work, we strive. From Christ's work, we strive. We strive actively toward godliness. So what does this mean? I believe that it means that our work, our work of godliness is practical because of His grace. It's practical because of His grace. It's reasonable. For this reason, the most important thing for us to notice in verses 5-7 through seven as we walk through them, is this command is based upon the truths of verse 3 and 4. God's divine power has given us all things that lead to godliness. For this reason, make every effort. Don't miss this connection this morning. We tend, to, we tend to err on one side or the other. Don't miss the connection. Since God has given us power for godliness, strive to become godly. Since God has already done and provided everything you need, work. We labor because God has already labored for us. And is at work in us. Don't miss that. Never say, I will work out my salvation in order that God might work in me. But we need to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.13, I work out my salvation for it, it is God who works in me to will and to do of His good pleasure. Peter's point here, when he says for this reason, he is saying God is for us, God empowers us, so make every effort to live 
like Christ. So our work is very reasonable. It's very practical because of His grace to us. But also our work is very clear because of His grace. Verses 5-7 through describe how the believer should live. And there's eight things that he mentions here. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. I want to make note of it uh, that, that this list begins with faith and it ends in love. And I think that's very important for us to, to see. It is through faith in Christ by and through His grace that enables us, right? It becomes reasonable for us to work, to be godly. But it's also very clear. Peter gives us these characteristics of a godly life. And I want us to make sure as we navigate through this, because we want to be very practical, we want to be very clear. But I want us to make sure as we navigate through this, that these are not steps to become godly. These are not eight things that you need to do to be saved. This is not a self-help program. Our foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Romans 8, 28 through 30. That is, that is our foundation. These are not uh, uh, eight self-helps. The word add here in these verses, look, look closely. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and, this word add, and here, means to supply generously. In other words, we develop one quality as we exercise another. And these qualities grow out of a vital knowledge or relationship with Christ. And when Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And he is saying, he is saying something very powerful here. To supply generously. This is again God's grace here. Alright? He says, and, and with that faith, virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So all of these qualities grow out of this vital relationship as we described in verse 3 and 4. But what are these qualities? Let's just take a minute and walk through these qualities because we're going to come back to those. When we just answer our second question, why does it even matter? Virtue. Virtue. Basically, virtue means moral excellence. Excellence. To, to the Greek philosophers uh, during this time, it meant a fulfillment of a thing. And with this thought in mind, Peter is saying that the quality of a true Christian is that his life is marked by fulfilling his purpose, which is to glorify and enjoy God forever. That's what it means to be virtuous here. That's what it means to be morally excellent here. It's that from faith, as faith grows, 
Your, your ability and your willingness and your desire to see God glorified and enjoy Him forever, it grows. It doesn't stay stagnant. It grows. It is virtue. And as our virtue grows, what happens? Virtue helps us develop knowledge. What is that knowledge? It is that relationship with God in one sense. The word here suggests a knowledge that is growing. A knowledge, it refers to our ability to navigate all of our life for the glory of God. That's what it means to be to have knowledge here. And then knowledge helps us develop self-control. That ability to be disciplined in our life in order to press on to the mark of the high calling that we have in Christ Jesus. And then self-control helps us to develop steadfastness or, or, or patience. The ability to endure when circumstances are difficult by faith in God. Then steadfastness helps us grow in godliness. And, and simply, godliness means God-likeness. And in the original language here, it actually, um, it actually describes someone who worships well. It's what it's like to be God-like. Someone who worships well. This describes that a person that is seeking to do the will of God. And as godliness grows, it helps us to grow in our love for the church. It helps us to grow in our love. This is simple. If we say we love God, then we'll love the brethren. We'll love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will practice a sincere love and concern and affection for people who are like us, who believe like us. But as faith in God and all these qualities grow, they help to do something that is remarkable. They help us to love. But not only to love, but to love sacrificially. They help us in brotherly affection, we love because, our, because of our likeness to others. We say we love Christ. Awesome. We can celebrate that. You're my brother. And we can greet each other with a bro hug, fist bump. Yes, we love Jesus. But as we grow in brotherly affection, as we grow in all of these qualities, all of a sudden, we also grow in a sacrificial love where we love in spite of our differences. It's one thing to love someone that we share things in common with. It's a whole different thing to love someone we have nothing in common with. And this is the picture, the quality of a godly life that, that Peter is painting here. That we actively strive toward godliness. And here's the gist of what Peter is telling these believers. By His grace... Apply yourself diligently in virtue. Apply yourself diligently in virtue. Seek to glorify God in your life. And seek to enjoy God. And then, and then press on to increase your knowledge of God's will. Press on to know God. To know His Word. To enjoy God. And then Peter's saying, then... Then believer, be diligent 
to enlarge your capacity of self-control, to be disciplined in the graces of God. And then he would say, cultivate steadfastness. Every form of patience. Tap into this divine power that is holding you fast and grow in that. Cling to the cross. Cling to the truth that He will never leave you or forsake you. Cling to the truth that no matter what comes your way, trials or tribulations, that He will hold your fast. Cultivate that. And then strive to strive to kindle your affection for other believers. Be around other believers. Pray with other believers. Read the Scriptures with other believers. Worship with other believers. Share a meal with other believers. Do everything that you can to kindle your affection. And in and through it all, believer, grow in love. Grow in love. Now, what we need to know, church, is that this is only possible and clear. This is only practical and clear through the power and promises of God working in our life. Make that very clear. This is only reasonable for us this morning. And this is only clear for us this morning if the gospel is true. And that leads us to our second question this morning. Why does any of this matter? Why does godliness matter? Why should I be concerned about virtue? Why should I be concerned about knowledge? Why should I be concerned about patience and steadfastness and self-control? Why should I be concerned about brotherly affection and love in my life? It matters because our growth in godliness gives assurance today. We live in a world full of doubt. And Scripture is black and white when it comes. You are saved or you are not. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ or you have not. You have the divine power and promises of God residing in you that are changing you, have changed you, and will change you in your life, or you do not. Why does all of this matter? Is because we need to be sure this morning. We need to know. My prayer is that if you came into this church and you are weary and you're beaten down and virtue is not something that you are really desiring in your life and patience is not something that you're doing well and you really do not feel like loving anybody that you will see the beauty and ecstasy and glory of the God of this Bible and you will repent and you will turn from your sins and you will trust in Him. That He will provide for you everything that you need today so that you can be sure. So Peter elaborates on this in verse 8 through 11. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. This tells us something, church. Gospel fruit, 
gospel qualities, Christ-like qualities, are an indicator of spiritual life. You see, verse 8 gives us uh, an encouragement and also a warning. For if these things are yours and abound, in other words, they're increasing, they keep you from ineffectual and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ. So these qualities keep us. These qualities keep us. So gospel fruit, the fruit of that relationship with Christ, keep us. They keep us from something. They keep us from being ineffectual in our life. They keep us from being unfruitful in our life. And so that's a great encouragement. If you're bearing the fruit of godliness in your life, be encouraged this morning because it's an indication of your spiritual life. The fruit of the gospel, of gospel living, is the assurance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the opposite of that is an ineffective and idle life. In church, I believe that you know, Peter is writing to the brothers here. He is writing to the church. This is a suffering church. This is a hurting church. You look at 2 Peter chapter 2, you'll see that there are false teachers in the church. They are undermining the gospel. They are twisting the gospel. They're making the gospel say what they want it to say. And they're absolutely destroying these believers. And they are holding on to something. And Peter is coming in and saying, listen, it tells them it is possible. It is possible to become indifferent. It's, in, it's possible to become unfeeling. It is possible to be careless with grace in our life. Second Peter 2.20 specifically says, If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them. And overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. If the knowledge of God's glorious promise does not spur us on and stir us up to strive to be like Christ, then our lives will be barren and fruitless. That's what verse 8 says. And I believe what we see in the example and the qualities mentioned in verse 5 through 7, we see that by grace, true believers do not stop pursuing growth and grace. True believers don't stop pursuing. They go on. They advance. They apply themselves with diligence to increase in these things. They want to glorify Christ. They want to magnify Christ. They want to enjoy Christ. And they maybe go through seasons of difficulty, but their desire is to increase in these things. Gospel fruit is an indicator of spiritual life, but gospel fruitfulness, fruitlessness is an indication of spiritual death. And we see those. That's why I say Scripture is very black and white. This is a very difficult and deep passage of Scripture to walk through because it kind of attacks our intellect and our heart. Gospel fruit is an indicator of spiritual life, but gospel fruitlessness is an indication of spiritual death. Verse 9, 
Verse 9 describe what has happened in the person who is not moving forward in Christ-like qualities. For whoever lacks these things, in verse 5 and 7, is blind. Whoever lacks these things. So, if these qualities are yours and increasing, that's gospel fruit. That, 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 that's a sign that you have been born again. But for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. He's blind. But not only is he blind, he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. The problem with a person who does not strive toward Christ's likeness is that he's really blind in two different directions. One, when he looks to the future, the promises of God have become so entangled with the cares of this world. Have become so blurry. I can't see eternity future because I am wrapped up in my worldly passions and desires. I think a lot of our our, our angst and our doubt, a lot of our anxiety over our salvation could be attributed to the fact that we are so entangled with the cares of this world that we cannot anticipate the glory to come. And so we don't live for Christ today because we are wrapped up in our own selfish passions and desires. And I believe if we go back to the first few verses that we read, that we understand that we have been graced with the Word of God in order to go to battle with our own predisposition to sin. Our prom- we, we, when we look to the future, the promise of God comes so blurry because we are pursuing the wrong things. And then when we look to the past, when we look to the past, the forgiveness that made this individual so excited, so on fire for the gospel, so elaborate life that they were living, that they would die for them, turn away from their self, and they would trust in Christ, that they'd be willing to to be persecuted with Jesus. Now. All they see is an emptiness. All they look and see is empty. They have forgotten the glory of the cross. You see, gospel fruitlessness is an indication of something of great concern this morning. Because just as in verse 3, the power for godliness flows to the knowledge of God, so in verse 9, blindness to the past and future work of God, it blocks that power. It blocks that power and it leaves us empty. It leaves us empty. I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. But verse 10 makes it clear what is at stake here. Verse 10 makes it clear what is at stake. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Therefore, brethren, be zealous to confirm your call 
and election. The danger described in verse 8 and 9 is not the danger of slipping into the kingdom with no rewards. It is the danger of not being saved at all. When, when Peter says, be zealous to confirm your call and election, he means that our lack of diligence in Christian graces may be a sign that we were never called and not among the elect. I want to be clear again of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that the whole world lies under the righteous judgment of God because of sin. But because of God's great mercy, God has ordained a people for Himself. He's ordained a people for Himself to be saved by grace. This is His elect, His chosen, whom He has predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And just as Paul explains in Romans 8.30, that those elect whom He predestined to Christ-likeness, He also called. And whom He also called, He justified. And whom He justified, He also glorified. What if we know this about the Bible? None of God's sheep will ever be lost. They are eternally secure. That's what we know that the Bible teaches us. But the question here, and what Peter is driving here, the most important, important question that Peter is asking of us today. Am I among the elect? Are you among the elect? And he gives us instruction there. If we are, God wants you to know that you are. That's why this is here. That's why it's important. That's why it matters. God wants you to know. He wants you to have joyful assurance this morning. When we sing, He will hold us fast, we sing it with joy. Why? Because we know that He will. For out of that assurance flows tremendous power. And out of that power flows qualities that glorify God in every aspect of our life. So it, Peter emphatically says, confirm your election. Make sure of it. How? How do you do this, Peter? By standing in your faith. Pressing on to virtue. Growing in knowledge. Cultivating self-control. <coughs> growing in patience. And godliness. Brotherly affection. Persevering in love. The reassuring evidence of our election is Christ-likeness. The reassuring evidence of our election. How do I know that I'm being saved? It's not just because I believed. It is because I believed and I now strive. How do I know that I'm being saved? How do I know that I'm part of the elect? One way to know is to look at your life. Verses 10 and 11 conclude, if you do these things, 
referring back to verse 5 and 7, you will never fall. So there will be a rich, there will be richly provided you an entrance, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, church, these Christ-like qualities are not the wages that we pay to earn eternal life. It's not wages that we pay. They are evidence of our faith in Christ is genuine. And in that way, they are confirmation of our call and election. It can be summarized. There is a, there's this reciprocal uh, relationship between assurance and fruit. Knowing that we are saved encourages us to pursue spiritual virtues. And our practice of spiritual virtues strengthens our assurance of salvation. Does that? Let me say that one more time. All right. Knowing that we are saved encourages us to pursue spiritual virtues. And our practice of spiritual virtues strengthen our assurance of salvation. These things go hand in hand. This is not, there's not a conflict here. This is not a gray area. Peter is being emphatically clear. You are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And because of that, you can be sure when you evaluate your life because God is doing a work of grace in you and you, are, you're, you, you, no, you no longer have this heart that is dead to the things of God, but you have a heart that's been made alive to the things of God. His Word has been written on your heart. His Spirit has put, been put within you to move you to love His Word, to grow in His Word and display His character. It is not our profession of faith that guarantees that we're saved. It is our progression in faith that gives us assurance that we are saved. It's not one time did I believe in Jesus. The question is, are you believing in Jesus? It's not one time I repented of my sins, but am I living a life of repentance? It's not one time I acted like Christ. Are you acting like Christ today? How do I know that I'm being saved? We practice these godly traits not to secure our heavenly citizenship, but to remind ourselves that we have been cleansed from our former sins. Don't be like the person who has forgotten that they've been forgiven. We don't practice these things. We don't do these things just to earn something. We do these things because it is a reminder to us that God has done something merciful and gracious for us by sending His Son to die on the cross for us so that we, our sins, could be forgiven. We practice these things to confirm our calling and election and to receive the rich, the deep, entrance into the eternal kingdom. And I believe what we see in verse 10 and 11, this is very important for us to see. When he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then we go back to verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be become partakers of His divine nature. Peter has given us a link here. 
He's given us a link between believing God's uh, promises and union with Christ. And given this, we know that receiving a rich inheritance into heaven cannot mean that our spiritual fruits secure eternal life. In other words, there's no amount of good that you can do to earn favor with God. You need Christ. You need Christ to save you. You need Christ to cleanse you. And you need Christ to work in you in order for you to glorify God. The apostle means to drive home this point that true Christians act like Christ. And the more we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the more we'll experience the joy and confidence that we belong to Him. This is meant to be an encouragement to you, church, this morning. Although gaining assurance of salvation is not the primary reason why we do good works, we should not discount the assurance that comes from living a holy life. It's not the primary reason why we do good works, so that I can be assured. But don't discount the assurance that comes when you act like Christ. As we seek to obey Christ's commands, we can be sure that He is working in us. There's a lot here. But I want to I close this morning by applying these lessons to ourselves. The point of verse 5 through 11 is that we should earnestly confirm our call and election. That's the point. By making every effort to advance in the qualities of Christ. Peter was very emphatic here when he said, be all the more diligent to do this. So I believe that's our application this morning. Not one of us in here should leave without asking ourselves this question. Am, am I being saved? So here, here, here's how four applications. And then we're going to circle back to around the first one. Examine your life carefully. Examine your life carefully. Another application of, of this, no, though not directly found in this passage, I think it is still important for the church today, and that is to exhort one another lovingly. There's a great warnings, and there's great things that we need to consider here, and they are meant for the church. How many times do you say brothers and brothers and brothers? There is a collective thing going on here. It's not just this one guy named Peter trying to live a godly life. It's about God's church. So exhort one another lovingly. Also exalt Christ passionately. I think one of the things that we, we see here, we talk about godliness. We think about a bunch of rules to obey, but we don't think about a worship to be had. Knowing God is about a relationship with God. Living like God is about worshiping Him. Enjoying Him. 
exalt Christ passionately, and then embrace the gospel completely. Embrace the beauty of God's grace and mercy to you this morning. Embrace it. Don't reject it. Don't use it as a license to sin. Don't use it as a stepping stone to whatever pursuit that you may or may not have that is not from God's Word. Embrace the truth that you were lost, but now you've been found. You were dead, and now you've been made alive. You were once an enemy of God, but now He calls you a friend. Embrace the truth of the Gospel. Let's go back to the first, because I believe the first application is where we see our passage focus more intently. Examine your life carefully. Be diligent to answer the question this morning, am I saved? How do I know? How can I have assurance today that I'm being saved? Here's some questions you can ask yourself. Are you making every effort towards virtue? Are you making every effort to live for the glory of God? Are you making every effort to increase your knowledge of God's character and His holy will? Are you making that effort? Do you have a desire in you to strengthen your power of self-control? To discipline yourself in the graces of Scripture? Do you have a desire to pray more? Do you have a desire to read more? To meditate more? To serve more? Are you making every effort to enlarge your capacity for patience? To enlarge your capacity to press on? Are you making every effort to cultivate godliness to develop a heart for God? Are you making every effort to grow warm in your affection for the church, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you making every effort to cultivate that relationship? And finally, are you making every effort to stir up love in your will for the world around you? Examine your life. If these things are in you and they are increasing, you will not be fruitless. You will never stumble. And you have a promise to enter into an eternal kingdom with Christ. But the warning here is that if these things are not your earnest concern this morning, it's because you have shut your eyes to the beauty of God's promises. And you have forgotten the humble joy of being forgiven 
And the call today for you is to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. How do I know that I'm being saved? God's gracious to you. God is gracious to you. Let's bow our head. Close for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the power of Your Word. Lord, and we pray that this Word would do far more than we could ever even think about or fathom. That if there, wherever there is doubt this morning, Lord, that Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit and Your grace, provide assurance. Father, if there's one here that does not know You and that free pardon of his sin, they've never experienced Your grace. Father, draw them to faith. Birth faith in their dead heart this morning. Make them alive this morning. Do not haste, Father. Draw them. May they repent of your sins, their sins and put their wholehearted trust in in You for life. Father, if there is a believer here this morning that is weary, that is beaten down, that is discouraged by life, God, I pray that You would remind them of the great and precious promise of Your Word. That You who began a good work in them, will bring it to completion. That You will be glorified in their life. That You will be with them every step of the way. That You're working all things together for their good. Renew them. Encourage them. Restore them. And remind them this morning that You are a good and gracious God and You're worthy of all praise and honor and glory.